God is good. God is good. Funny you should say that. You know that to be a fact, that God is good all the time. But sometimes we let our circumstances take our eyes off of God. Now, of course, that's never happened to you, has it? Have you ever wondered why trials come to us as Christians in this life? It's to test the metal of our faith, to see what you're really made of. You say you have faith, and God says, let me see it. Satan says, let me throw a trial at him, and they'll walk away from their faith in a heartbeat, just like he did with Job in the Old Testament book that bears his name. God allows trials in your life and my life, and none of us are exempt from trials, have you noticed? He sends those, he allows those to test what our faith is made of. You say that you have faith. You show me your faith by how you go through your trials. In fact, you show the whole world where you stand spiritually in this issue of maturity. You either take your trials and you cast all of your cares upon him who cares all for you, or you become self-absorbed, just like Satan wants you to be. Think of the last trial you faced. I'm not minimizing your trials. What I don't want you to do is minimize God. His ability to meet you in those trials. I, if I were to ask you, is God greater than your trials? All of you would say yes. But what does it look like? What does our faith look like when we actually go through those trials? Are we still praying? Are we still in God's word? Are we still, is he still worthy? then why do we allow Satan to so discourage us going through it? And all of a sudden, we become little self-absorbed, little minute creatures walking in darkness and defeat. And other Christians look at you and go, what? Where's your faith? Aren't you reading the Word of God? Aren't you praying? Aren't you standing on His promises? Some of you may even resent me or even having brought that to your attention. It is not that I can walk in your footsteps. I cannot. God has custom designed your trials for you. They don't fit me. It's his yoke that's on your neck. But he understand what he's trying to do. He's trying to show you that there might just be room for improvement in your faith. Because the last trial that came along, you just melted like jello on a hot August sidewalk. And maybe the Lord is saying not to condemn you in any way, shape, or form, but to encourage you to put yourself in better spiritual shape for the next trial that is inevitably coming. I would love to be able to tell you, you will never have another trial in your life. In fact, there is a stream of theology that's out there today that is heretical and demonic at its core that says, it is God's will that you never be sick. It's God's will that you be healthy, wealthy, and prosperous all the days of your life. Really? Preach it to COVID. Well, we were all, the world was sick. Why? Because we didn't have faith? Many people that I knew had faith, and the trial had nothing to do with whether their faith was good or bad or indifferent, COVID happened to the saved and the unsaved, the young and the old. It affected everybody. And yet there is this stream of theology that says, well, I'm sorry, something must be wrong with your faith because you got COVID. 
If you'd have just had enough faith, that's a lie from the pit of hell. Did Jesus go through trials? What makes you think you will be exempt then? It says that Jesus learned obedience through his trials. Are you learning obedience from your trials? God is not trying to discourage or, 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 or let you down in any way, shape, or form. He loves you to death. He's wanting to teach you that you must, you must turn to him when those trials hit. Satan does not want you to do that. So Satan will do everything he can to have you so self-absorbed in the circumstance. You're not reading, you're not praying, you're not praising God. You're just overwhelmed. And your response isn't spiritual. In fact, your knee-jerk response to any trial, your knee-jerk response, the immediate response is always the flesh. When somebody says something to offend you, your first response as a Christian is what? Yeah. You want to justify yourself. You've been unjustly accused. Paul, as he writes this letter, has been sitting in jail for two years. You know what his crime was? Being a Christian full of faith, spirit-filled, telling people about Jesus. Now, I don't know that I won't ask for a show of hands as to how many of you have been in jail for two consecutive years for something you didn't do. But what would your response be if you were? Maybe for the first six months, you'd be mad at God. I can't believe you've allowed this. He allowed it in Paul's life. Does God cease being good when the world comes against us? When our flesh fails us? When sickness comes along or financial hardship? Does God stop loving us? Is his plan for our life defeated? Does Satan win? Is Satan greater than God? Is God not greater than the weakness of my own flesh? These are the kind of questions you have to handle and wrestle with going through the book of Philippians. Because in chapter 3, Paul, this guy who's been unjustly incarcerated for two years, says, here's what you should do when you face your trials. He is saying that because nobody does that. What does he say? Finally, my brethren, it tells me he's a good preacher. He's only halfway through his book. But he says, finally, like he's going to wrap it up. No pastor does. So when the pastor says, in closing, look at your watch. He's probably got 45 minutes to go. That's just the nature of pastors. But he says, finally, my brothers. In other words, this is the last big topic I want to cover. This issue of trials and where your heart is at when you go through those things. Here's why you get mad at God when the trials hit. Can I just tell you? Because God didn't perform according to your expectations. And you know I'm right. You had expected God to answer your prayers in the way that you wanted them answered. That's why you prayed. We tend to tell God what to do in our prayers. Lord, do this for me. Lord, I want this job. Lord, I want this salary. I want, I, 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 I want, I want. 
I find when Jesus prayed in the most harrowing experience of his life in the Garden of Gethsemane, he ended his prayer by saying this, not my will, but yours be done. The, the problem is we lack the understanding of what God's doing. We lack the understanding, but we're commanded in Scripture in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, do not lean upon your own understanding. But that's the very first thing we as Christians, the pagans do it too. But because we also came out of a world made of flesh, we fall back, oh, I don't understand. I can just imagine, because God's not going to say it because he's so loving and kind and compassionate, but when the Christians are asking why, I'm sure the angels are going up there, haven't you ever read the word of God? You're not supposed to try to understand it. You're supposed to exercise your faith. Faith in what? Not what I can see, but who I know. Is he faithful? Is he all-powerful? Is he all-loving? Is he all-kind? Yes. Then why am I consumed with my circumstance? I've taken my eyes off God. And unless you're a chameleon, you can't look at two things simultaneously. Or maybe your name's Marty Feldman, you can, and one eye's over here looking at that. Otherwise, most of us have stereoscopic vision. But you can't look at your problems and be consumed by them and look at God and be consumed by him. The one will dominate your thoughts more than the other. Depends on who you turn to. Well, Paul is sitting in jail in a place I wouldn't want to be. I mean, we look at jails today, but they were nothing like the dungeons of Rome in the first century, I'll tell you that. He says in his imprisonment, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice. And he mentions that at joy and rejoicing 16 times in four chapters. Do you think he's trying to tell us something? Okay, here's where he steps on our toes. You didn't experience joy the last trial you went through, did you? You were mad, sad, hurt, depressed. You were all of those things probably, but the chances are good that you didn't rejoice in that trial. And yet we are commanded in Scripture to, to rejoice rejoice. And Paul puts it in such a way in the original language, it says, you, yourself, regardless of what everybody else is doing, you rejoice and keep on doing it. It's an imperative. It's a command. He can command it because it's not based on our circumstance. Our joy is based on the Lord, his word, his promises. Are you still going to heaven? Yep. Are your sins still forgiven? Yep. Is God still good? Yep then why can't I rejoice if my eyes are on him instead of the trial? The trial. Notice it says rejoice in what? The Lord. How's your walk with the Lord? Are you in his word daily? Are you in prayer and intimate communication with him 24-7? It's an open dialogue. Phone line's never busy. Just keep talking to God. 
Keep casting all of your cares on them. Stop leaning on your own understanding. Because my circumstances may be good or bad, difficult or easy, I, but I can always rejoice in the Lord because he's unchangeable. Because he still loves me. He, he still sent his son. He still gives me his Holy Spirit. I can rejoice because I know the destiny of all of those that love him. He loves me more than I love me. He loves my children more than I love my children. He loves my grandchildren as hard as this is to believe. He loves my grandchildren more than I do. So when I pray, here's what I expect. God to be glorified. God to be glorified. That's why I exist. It is why you and I are here. And if he allows anything that he does in our lives, it is for our ultimate benefit, not our immediate pleasure. God's in the long game. You and I tend to see things just one moment at a time. Give you, for instance, there's some great football games on today. For those of you into football, and you go, oh, no, not a sports analogy for a pastor who doesn't follow sports much. <clears throat> Well, here's the deal. I'm not going to miss a thing today by my preaching or my daughter's birthday this, this afternoon that we're going to celebrate. Uh, that's going to be fun. Looking forward to that. Hanging out with family always brings me great joy. <clears throat> so I won't be home to watch the game. So what I did is I put them on DVR. Don't, don't spoil it. Don't, don't you tell me what the score is. before the. Uh, we'll talk about that tomorrow. You know, because I don't really care. I can watch it after the fact, and then I can fast forward through all the commercials. Huh? Is that genius or what? To put it on DVR, fast forward through all the commercials. What I do is I'm a great armchair quarterback if I'm watching it live. Oh, he should have done this. He should have done that. If I were the quarterback, yeah, right. How many 70-year-old quarterbacks do you know in the NFL? It's not the way that works exactly. I'd be, I'd be in a hospital for the next 10 years. It's easy to be a critic, isn't it? It's easy to get so caught up in the moment. Oh, this happened. Oh, that so upset me. But I don't know the end of the game. It's like God's got this celestial-sized DVR up there, and he knows the end from the beginning and all points in between. I don't. I'm just watching life go by like a football game, live, one play at a time, one moment at a time, one idiot at a time, one circumstance, one guy who winds up injured on the field at a time. God sees the end game. You and I are so preoccupied with the hurt of the moment, we forget the healing that is ours in eternity. Eternity. Do you understand that? I have to keep my eyes on him. My future is in a God who does not change. My circumstances change all the time. I've got to be preoccupied with him. My future with him is absolutely secure. All of those that I know that trust in him, I'm going to see him in heaven for eternity. I need not worry about life or death in, in this side of glory. My hope is constant. My hope is undiminished by my circumstances. Don't lean on your own understanding going through the trials. Don't ask why, because that will always undermine your faith. It makes you dependent upon your understanding instead of his. 
It puts you in control, demanding an answer of an omnipotent God, and the creation demanding an answer of the Creator. Does that seem appropriate to you? And yet that's usually the first stick that we, we grab. Know this, the Lord stands with us in the storms of life. He's been walking on the water ever since we were born and before, as he did with, with Peter. He's just waiting for us to exercise the faith to get out of the boat, walk on the water with him. Instead, we would prefer, like the other disciples that were in the boat that didn't walk on water, it's easier to say, oh, don't you care that we're drowning? Don't you care that we're going to perish? Does God care? Yes. Yes. God always comes walking to the water, on the water to his disciples. He always does. He'll meet you where you're at. He'll meet you where you're at. You've got to trust in him. Jesus had sent his disciples out across the lake knowing that a storm would blow up, knowing that they would be fearful of their very lives, knowing that they would be on the very edge, the very precipice of losing their lives and freaking out. It wasn't, why did he allow that? It was a test. Where's your faith? So when Peter got out of the boat, walked a few steps, and then looked at the circumstances around him, he fell back into the water and cried out, Jesus, help. And Jesus did what? He picked him up by his hand. And they lifted him up. Do you remember what Jesus said to Peter? Oh, you have little faith. Where's your faith? Peter, you need to learn. You need to grow. You need to be in the Word, standing on the promises of God. Don't you know in whom you trust? Where is your faith? I hear that in every trial that I've ever faced. Jim, where is your faith? I know in whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed into his hands. Didn't God say in Hebrews 13, 5, I will never leave you nor forsake you? What are you worried about? Well, because it's not happening the way I planned. It's not happening as fast as I wanted it to. Romans 8, 28. Here's a test of your faith. When you're going through the trials, can you still say this is true? And we know that all things work together for the good. How many things? All. Everything that you've gone through. But I don't understand. Stop. You're not supposed to. What part of this don't you understand? Do you not grasp the words that are coming out of my mouth? You are not supposed to try to understand. But I have heard that ever since I've been in ministry. Well, Pastor Jim, I don't understand. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, you're commanded to not lean upon your own understanding. But I don't understand. It just makes you want to reach across the desk and go, do you need a cup of caffeinated coffee? What is your problem? Pay attention. You're not focused. This is the word of God. Uh, we know that all things work together for the good of those that love God to them that are called according to his purpose. Does God love you? Yes. Are you called? Yes. Are you saved? Yes. It says all things will work. How? I don't know. I can't tell you. Don't go to a pastor or a counselor looking for that answer. They can't tell you either. These things are hidden in the secret compartments, councils of God. His purposes shall, shall prevail. So 
the test is, will I keep my eyes on the Lord instead of complain to my neighbor? Oh, if you only knew how hard my life was. That doesn't give God glory. Oh, if you knew what a jerk I was married to. My wife knows the jerk that she's married to. She's still exercising her faith. She has no, she has no expectations of a perfect husband. Although I tell her I'm perfect all the time. She struggles believing that. It's a leap of faith that she'll take someday, I'm sure. But trials are where our faith is tested, isn't it? It's easy to say you love Jesus when everything's coming up roses. But the bottom line is all of us go through trials. Every single one of us. And dearest friends, it is not dependent upon whether your faith is great or small. Oh, if you just had more faith, you'd be healed. Oh, if you just had more faith, you'd be rich. None of us are rich, and all of us have been sick, and we're looking forward to glory, not wealth and riches on this earth, this side of glory. Jesus said in John 16, 33, in this life, you will, you will have tribulation. Because this world, this sinful fallen world, is in the hands of Satan. When man sinned in the Garden of Eden, Satan was right there, took over title deed to the planet Earth, and Jesus redeems that in Revelation chapter 4, or excuse me, 6, as he begins to unleash the seals and reclaim the title deed to planet Earth. That's the scroll that he's holding in his hands that is sealed with these seven seals. He is redeeming the earth. He guaranteed Satan's defeat by the cross. There is no one, no weapon formed against you that will prosper. We've got God's word on that from the the Old Testament. Thus we're commanded to rejoice. Jesus said, yeah, in this world you will have trouble, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. That's the test. Do you believe this? Do you remember when Jesus came to the tomb of his friend Lazarus and his sisters came to Jesus and said, oh, Lord, he's been four days in the tomb now. Don't open that thing. Surely he's got decomposition has taken place. Jesus said, I am the resurrection. Oh, I know, Lord, he's going to be resurrected in the day. And Jesus said, no, I'm the resurrection. I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will never die. And then he asked the question of the sisters, do you believe this? So the next trial that is coming your way, and it is coming, here's the issue on the table. Do you believe that Jesus is able to see you through that stormy sea? Do you believe that he is sufficient to meet you in that trial? Do you believe that he can somehow or another in ways I don't understand and won't try? Do I believe that God can be glorified in how I go through this trial? I believe that is entirely possible if we will stand by faith. That's why Jesus told his half-brother James some of these fundamental truths in life, and James passes them on to us in the book that bears his name in the New Testament. He says, consider it. All joy, pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds. And most of us stop there and go, the man needs to see some, a doctor or something. He does not have a, a, a reasonable perspective. You're right, his is Christian. What's yours? 
He was the half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. Grew up with Jesus. I can imagine what that was like in the house. Oh, he never does anything wrong. Mom's always picking on us. I always get the spankings, but Jesus never does anything. That must have been a hard one. James came to faith after the resurrection and then tells us the same thing Paul does. Rejoice. Why? Because these trials that God allows serve his purposes. How many of you have ever read the book of Job? You don't really have to go through the first more than the first two chapters to see that God has a plan in this that you don't see till the end of the book. But by the way, when Job fundamentally answers, asks the question why, God doesn't tell him. God just restores his fortunes to where he had twice as much at the end than the beginning. God never explained himself to Job. Did you ever pick that up out of the book? Job was expected to walk by faith, not understanding. So the end of the book is glorious, but Job didn't see the end of the book when he was going through his trials. And the the trials he went through, there is nobody in this room that has ever come remotely close to what he went through. And yet his faith proved true. James says, consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds. Here's why. Because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Can I put another word in there? The testing of your faith develops spiritual maturity. It teaches you. You want to shorten up your trial? Learn your lessons faster. Does that just make sense? You want to shorten up your trials? You want to minimize the need for trials? Then learn as much as you can from everyone that comes along and praise God in the midst of all. And James continues and says, Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. God is in the long game. You're so preoccupied with the immediate circumstance that you fail to remember that God's on the throne. He's in control. He loves you. He's got this. He's just waiting for you to pray, to seek his face, to give him glory. Can you you praise God for an outcome not yet seen? Hebrews tells us that faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. When my granddaughter was going through her open-heart surgeries last week, I didn't know the outcome. The test was, will I praise him without needing to see the outcome? Do I believe that he loves me and that he's in control? Yep. What was the test for me? Do I believe that in that moment of moments? I'd give my life for her in a heartbeat. But when loved ones, your children or your grandchildren, uh, go through those kind of cataclysms where you don't know if they're going to live or die, that's where your faith is really shown to be what it is, strong or not. I've endured many of those trials in my life. Me and Kathy, our son was born with hydrocephalus, and they told us, well, he's never going to walk, talk. He'll never be able to fend for himself. He'll never be able to go to school. He's going to be a vegetable, perhaps. They were trying to prepare us for the worst. And here Luke sits before us this morning at 40 years old as a testimony to God's goodness. Could we praise God through the trial? Yeah, we had to. Did I know how it was going to turn out? Of course not. You're not supposed to. That's why they call it faith. 
not sight. Not understand. They call it faith for a reason. You're expected. God expects you. You want to know what God expects of you? He expects you to walk by faith, not by sight or understanding or wisdom. Don't pay a lot of attention to what the doctors say. They're doing the best they can, but they're not God. Have you noticed? They're just not God. Praise God that he uses them sometimes or praise his holy name for that. But I'm going to trust God through thick and thin because he's God and I'm not. He's got me in the palm of his hands, and I feel at rest there. I don't need to worry or fret or hassle. Nobody in this room is exempt from trials. You say, well, you've never gone through my trials. You've never gone through mine. None of us have ever gone through Job's. That's an idiot's argument. The issue is, do you trust God? This is not a contest to see who has the greatest trial in the room. You're missing the whole point. Is God greater? Yes. Yes, he is. And my, I, I believe that by faith. I know his character. I know his name. I know his son. I know the promises of God because I'm in the word of God. He said all things work together. I'm good. I'm good. He didn't tell me how it's going to turn out. He just gave me the promise that it'll turn out for his glory, which is the only reason I'm here. It's to give him glory. Pass your tests. Stand on the work and the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's gone before us. The scripture tells us that he is the author and perfecter of our faith. In other words, he's bringing a work of maturity to pass. And there's no shortcuts. There's no shortcuts to spiritual maturity. We take it one trial at a time, and there our faith is built. He will not leave us. He will not forsake us. We know that. We need to lean on those promises when the trials come. Jesus said life's hard, and all of us can say, Amen. Is he greater? Yes. Are his promises still true? Yes. In the long run, is everything going to turn out just fine if I keep my eyes on him? Yes. Is eternity mine? Yes. Then stop complaining. Stop complaining. In fact, Paul will use that very verbiage in this very letter. Do everything without complaining, he says. But somehow or other, we justify why we do. Well, he wasn't talking about me. He didn't know my circumstance. I'm different. You see, I, I have a right to complain. You're a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, a doulos, a slave. You have no rights at all. You surrendered those to the moment you said yes to Jesus as Lord and Savior. Your job is to serve him through thick and thin, not question what he does, but to accept what he does because you know the master. You know his love, his character, his nature. His promises, all things. Peter puts it this way. Peter had gone through a lot and learned his lessons well. And at the close of his life, writes this in 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7. In this you greatly rejoice our salvation, he's speaking about. Though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. They were persecuted viciously. Their children fed to the wild animals in the arenas. Has that ever happened to you? And you, yet you complain about what? 
These people were forced to watch their own children being fed to wild animals and told, we'll rescue your children if you'll just recant your faith in Jesus Christ. Peter, his own wife, was crucified. And for three days that it took her to finally perish, the Romans were taunting him, if you just renounce Christ, we'll take her off the cross and attend to her wounds. You've never faced anything like that. You and I have zero right to complain about the things that God allows in our lives because he loves us, because he's maturing our faith, because we're not supposed to lean on our own understanding. We're commanded, in verse 1, to rejoice. It doesn't say feel sorry for yourself. It doesn't say complain. It says rejoice. We forget that. Peter reminds us these trials, these have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold in God's eyes, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. I know you've probably been in that place where you've thought to yourself, yeah, but my life seems to be one trial followed by another, followed by another, followed by another. And you go, why? Why is my life constantly just one trial after another? That's easy. A school teacher knows the answer. It's reinforcement through repetition. God allows a repetitive trial because perhaps you didn't learn that lesson the first time. So there's another trial that looks just like it coming down the road. Maybe you get to retest then. Maybe you'll pass that test. Maybe there's room for growth in this area of my life or that that requires a custom-made trial to teach me that lesson, to force me into that place where I can, I can express my trust and confidence in God once again. You think about it, in the Bible, every single biblical patriarch there was, every single one was tested throughout their lives. I mean, it goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Joshua, Job... <laughs> The disciples, Jesus himself. And yet somehow we want to dodge that bullet. And I understand that because trials don't feel good. I understand that part. Trials don't feel good. No one in their right mind likes pain. If you do, live, raise your hand because you're a sicko. There is something wrong with you. You need counseling, we'll pray for you right after church service. Nobody likes pain. Nobody, but I know that a loving God allows it in my life, sometimes for reasons at the moment I don't fully understand, but sometimes he gives me a glimpse maybe a couple of years later, and I look back and I go, now I see. Now I see. But I didn't at the time. That's when I was forced to exercise my faith because my understanding wasn't getting me anywhere. It wasn't helping me. No one is exempt from trials, not the rich, not the poor, the saved, the unsaved. In fact, think about this. Trials are often the very way that God led us to salvation. Maybe some of you were at the point of suicide and thought, I, I don't know why I shouldn't check out because my life is a hot mess. I've done everything I could to fix it, and it's still a hot mess. These trials are the very things not only that bring us to salvation sometimes, but they are the very things that bring us to spiritual maturity. And that God has dedicated himself to your spiritual growth. I know you sometimes feel that, God, could you, could you be concerned with somebody else's spiritual growth for a while? I need a break here, you know. 
I, catch, I just need to catch my breath. But he allows them in his time and his purposes. I, I praise God that, in fact, life is not one trial after another. It's, kind of, it's more like a whitewater rafting trip. There's rapids, oh, and then there's smooth spots where you can put the oars down and take a deep breath and relax. And there's times where you're going to get thrown out of the boat. The test is not to see whether you can walk on water at that moment, <laughs> but can you trust God in all of these things? Trials teach us to depend upon God strictly and solely and only. That's why you go through the trials that you do. So God can remind you and show you once again, he's sufficient to meet every need you'll ever have. Why? He loves you. He loves you. Maybe you don't love yourself. Maybe your spouse doesn't love you. Maybe your boss doesn't love you at work. God loves you. He wants us to lean upon him. Not our wisdom, not our strength, not our understanding. I stand on the promises of God. In fact, in just the next chapter that we'll get to probably in the next six months or so, <laughs> it depends on how, how quickly we get through the text before us. But Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Have you found that out yet? I can do all things. Don't you like it when the Lord uses that kind of terminology? It doesn't say some things, all things. All things work together for the good. I like the way that sounds. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Romans 8, 28, all things work together for the good. I love those passages. It reminds me, as I go through the trials, that there is a sufficient resource, and his name is Jesus Christ. Verse 2 is interesting because if verse 1 is a test of our faith, verse 2 is a test of our discernment. Do you know truth from error? I hope you haven't bought into the health, wealth, and prosperity lie that condemns people when they don't get what they want. They can whine to God, and then somebody can say, well, if you just had more faith, making you feel guilty. Or maybe somebody around you died because they didn't have enough faith. Oh, great. What kind of God is that exactly? Who of us has perfect faith? None of us. This is a test of teaching. One of the tests of our faith is whether we'll refuse and refute false teaching. Can we identify it by our knowledge of Scripture? Do you know the Word of God? Or are you just buying the latest bestseller on the Christian book list and hoping that it's all true? Do you use godly wisdom and the Holy Spirit discernment? Or do we accept the false messages that are out there today just because, you know, that really feels good to my flesh? Ooh, God wants me to win the lottery? How come none of you are? You must not have enough faith. Please. The Jew, and he talks about, look at this, in verse 2, he said, watch out for those dogs, those men who are evil, those mutilators of the flesh. These are Judaizers that were trying to tie everybody back to the law. Well, being a Christian is just fine, but that's not enough. You also need to get circumcised. And as you can imagine, all of the adult Greek males were not going, ooh, ooh, can I be next? They weren't signing up for that. Isn't Jesus enough or is it Jesus plus something else? Jesus plus keeping the law? Jesus plus circumcision? The circumcision in the Old Testament it was a covenant sign that was given to Abraham and his descendants. Genesis 17 is your go-to there. 
uh, they were to be circumcised, Jewish males were, on the eighth day. That's Genesis 21, Leviticus 12, and verse 3. But there is a New Testament equivalent to circumcision. Circumcision identified them with Yahweh, the God of Israel, the one true and living God. And circumcision was a sign of their commitment and devotion to him and his commandments. There is a New Testament equivalent. Do you know what it is? Baptism. Where we identify ourselves with the death and burial and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. As we go down into the waters and come up, all things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. That's a picture of identification. It doesn't save any more than circumcision in the Old Testament could save. If the law couldn't save, then good works can't save either. Salvation is found in Christ and Christ alone. But these Judaizers were pressuring these Christians. Well, you're saved by grace, but you know, you really need to keep the law. Well, what part of the law? What part of the dietary law? I, I, I can't eat shellfish, shrimp, crab, lobster. I can't have my steak medium because there may be too much pink in it. And there's not supposed to be blood in it. You know, where do you draw the line? Legalism is simply... An attempt to approach God on the basis of our works. Like God owes me. Like I'm hoping to get into heaven because my good deeds outweigh my bad. Good luck with that one. The issue isn't whether your good deeds outweigh your bad, but are you, do you know Jesus Christ as he washed away all of your sins because God's standard to get you into heaven is perfection. Perfection. Jesus offers us that. Thus, thus there is no other way to be saved. No other way to be saved. I can't approach God on the basis of what I've done. I approach God on the basis of what he's done. He gave me his son. He offers me his own righteousness. Why? Because, quite frankly, I have none. Where mine is so limited as to be insignificant. But if your focus is on what you can do for God, the tendency is always towards pride. Well, look what I've done. Well, I keep the whole law. I don't do this. I don't do that. And we identify ourselves as Christians on the basis of what we don't do rather than on the basis of what he has already done. That doesn't define us as Christians. It can so easily lead to spiritual pride, a false sense of self-sufficiency and self-confidence. And Paul says, I was that guy. I was that guy before his Damascus Road encounter that we read about in Acts chapter 9. But the fact of the matter is we're all bankrupt before God on all counts and so in need of his grace, his love, his mercy, his forgiveness, all offered us because of our simple faith, trust and hope and confidence in God and God alone. Well, Paul says they want you to get circumcised. Look at verse 3. But it is we who are really the circumcision. It's us that have circumcised our hearts. It's us that through baptism have identified ourselves with the risen Lord. We who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. Paul says, these guys think they got something to brag on? You want to get into bragging rights? Well, I've got bragging rights. I don't trust in those. He says, if anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, religion, self-effort, I have more. Look at verse 5. Circumcised on the eighth day 
good Jewish boy with good Jewish parents. Of the people of Israel, I was born into the promised people of God, the chosen. Of the tribe of Benjamin, that's where Israel's first king had come from. They were also the first, the only tribe besides Judah that remained loyal to Solomon's son when the ten northern tribes revolted under Jeroboam. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews in regard to the law. I was a Pharisee. Paul's saying, I've got lineage you wouldn't believe. I've got genealogy that's impeccable. His pedigree, his background, his religious zeal, his work, his education. Oh, do you have any idea how many degrees I have? The Pharisees would tout. Paul says, I, my credentials are impeccable, and I, there's a lot that I could brag on. Look at verse 6. As for zeal, you guys think you're zealous? Well, I persecuted the church. You mean like modern-day Muslims do? Yeah, pretty much. Killing people thinking they're doing a service to God? No. But, and as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. Paul says in verse 5, I was a Pharisee, very learned layman, often very wealthy businessmen. There was only about 6,000 of them in all of Israel in the time of Christ. And they prided themselves on keeping the, the smallest jot and tittle of the law. They were known for their piety, zealous devotion to the Lord and holiness. They, many of them prided themselves in their ability, get this, to quote the first five books of the Bible from memory. Can you do that? I guess you're not going to heaven. Sorry. It doesn't matter what you know. It matters who you know. Jesus Christ, do you know him? I'm not asking if you, do you know about him. History won't save you any more than the law. Do you know him? He knows you. Have you surrendered yourself to him? Well, Paul says, uh, that, that, that's who I was. It is not who I am. Verse 7, but whatever was to my prophet, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. He uses that word in verse 7 and verse 8, consider. You might want to circle that. You know what that says? It is a, it's a word in the original language that means you set your mind on these issues. I reckon the old nature to be dead. I reckon the things that I used to brag on all the time to be no, nothing more th th than rubbish. Paul went from being self-centered to being Christ-centered, and he considered everything a loss. Just as Christ did, doesn't it say... We read before in Philippians, Christ said he emptied himself of his divine prerogatives. So we are called upon to empty ourselves, take up our cross, deny ourselves, follow him. Jesus gave up everything for us. He asks us to give up everything for him. I died. When I accepted Christ, I picked up my cross. It was the death sentence to my flesh. But he'd gone before me. He had already picked up his cross. I just follow in his footsteps. That's what the word Christian means. Followers of Christ. Really, are you? Are you? Do you have his faith? Do you have his humility? Do you consider everything else in this world a loss compared to knowing him? 
what I've lost or given up for Christ is nothing compared to what I've gained in Christ and eternal life itself. And that's what Paul says. To consider in verses 7 and 8 means to think about these things. It's, it's in my opinion, Paul says, as I weigh these things out, I consider it. it. It's a mindset. I don't know where your mind is set, but it's either in this world or the world to come. can't be both places at the same time. I don't know what you're living for, but if it's not for God, you're barking up the wrong tree. You're looking for something to satisfy you that cannot. Only Christ himself can do that. Paul says, I consider all of these things that I formerly found prideful in my life, I consider them rubbish. Skubala means dung, literally. It's not worthy of being compared that I may gain Christ, verse 9, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of um, my own that comes from legalistic obedience, the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. He already did everything for me. He is my righteousness. I'm bankrupt in that area. So he clothes me in his own righteousness. And all he asks me to do and reminds me through the trials of life is, keep your eyes up here, Jim. Not down here. It's not about you. It's about what I have done for you. Heaven is your home. Eternity is your destiny. Get, keep your eyes on the prize. It's all a matter of focus. You've got to consider these things because the battle is for the mind. Verse 10, and this is our goal as Christians. I want to know Christ. Know him deeply, intimately, and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. Christ suffered for me. I will go through the sufferings in this life with my eyes on him. Why? Because it allows me to become like him. Increasingly, I'm becoming dead to this world and living for the world that is yet to come. And so somehow... Paul says in ways that I don't understand, don't comprehend fully, but believe my faith to attain to the resurrection from the dead. I'm going to live forever, but not in this body. <laughs> Praise Jesus. If you got bad news this morning, I've got good news for you. <laughs> you get a new body. Hallelujah. It makes us hungry for heaven with every passing year. But this, verse 10, you want to highlight that, baby. It is our goal as Christians. It is what is, what is required of us. Required of us. I want to know Christ, Paul says. Worded in such a way in the original language that I am the only one that can do this. I can't seek God for you. You're going to have to seek him yourself. I can't get in God's word for you. You're going to have to get in God's word. I can't fill you with his Holy Spirit, but if you put yourself in his presence, he will. It's a supernatural thing. It's beyond your understanding. Just go with this. It's by faith. Faith in the God who created this material universe that is seen and unseen on all levels as far as infinity goes. He's got this. When he says, I want to know Christ, understand that's a loaded term. The original term was how a man, quote, 
knew his wife. Sexually, deeply, intimately. That's the same word that's being used here. Paul's saying, I want to know Jesus as intimately as my wife knows me. As I know my wife, she knows everything about me, and she still loves me. And I stand in amazement. I know everything about her, and I love her to death. And she stands in amazement. We all are amazed at the love of God because it is, it is infinite. It is, he, he, he just loves us. That's how I want to know Christ. I, I don't want a casual acquaintance with him. I want to know him personally and deeply. I want to experience him. This is our goal, to know him, his power, his fellowship. And isn't that what it said in Deuteronomy? Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. One of the teachers of the law came to Jesus in Mark 12 and said, which of the commandments of the Old Testament, what's the most important ones? And Jesus said, this is simple. Love God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love each other. Speak well of each other. Believe in each other. Encourage one another. We can't set ourselves up as fault finders. And if our standard is perfection, nobody will meet that standard this side of Jesus Christ. A new commandment Jesus said in John 15, 12 to his disciples, love one another. By this, the whole world will know that you are my disciples. And yet the church squabbles, finger points, finds fault. Gossips, slanders, these things should not be so. Don't do that. Don't do that. This is so simple, so basic. It's not to be justified ever. Love one another unconditionally. We all fall short. Just raise your hand and say amen. We all fall short. I'm going to love you anyway. Doesn't matter. God loves us anyway. Stop being a fault finder. Don't look around, and the standard is perfection, but that's met in Christ Jesus. Don't expect it of another human being. Becoming like him, that's the goal in verse 10, becoming like him. So what are, in his death, it says, attaining to the resurrection from the dead, what things do I need to die to? Drugs, alcohol, selfishness, anger, pornography? What do you need to die to so that you can... Get to know Christ more intimately. Satan wants to hold you in bondage to these things. You struggle with lust. It's to be taken to the Lord, not hidden. I know it causes you shame. Take it to the cross of Jesus Christ and keep on taking it there. There's a continuous and onworking thing that God wants to do in us, on us, and through us. And yet our cooperation in this maturity process is, is essential. That's why Paul said in Philippians 2.12, you may struggle with that verse. It says, work out your own salvation. It does not say work for your salvation. You're already saved. But the maturity of the saint is an ongoing process. Yield to it. He'll use the trials of your life to do that. Understand this. The goal is not self-improvement in Christianity but total transformation. Total transformation. It's not a self-help program. Remember Jesus in his transfiguration atop the mountain took his three of his closest disciples with him, and there Jesus was transfigured, and his clothes became as white as the whitest white in the whole universe. There was a transformation, a metamorphosis that took place there. It wasn't a makeover. It was a complete transformation, a metamorphosis 
And that, trans, that transformation can only take place in your life and mine to the extent that we are intimate with Jesus. Intimate in prayer. Honest with him. Open, not trying to hide anything because of shame. We're all ashamed of our sins and we all fall short. But there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. That's what it says. I believe that with all of my heart. I am, I am my own worst critic. And Satan sits on my left shoulder, whispering those hints of condemnation regularly, as he does you. And he reminds you, you don't, you don't measure up, dude. You're not hacking it. Where's your faith? Give up. What kind of Christian do you think you are? How many sins can be forgiven, huh? How many times do you think he's going to forgive you that same sin? What you need is a transformation. <sighs> transformation. Let's stand together as the band comes up. And I just want you to close your eyes and bow your head. And either out loud or in your heart of hearts, would you just pray this to the Lord? Lord, I need you. I need a transformation that only you can bring. Like Paul, I want to know you, Lord Jesus. I want to study your word. I want to pray without ceasing. I want to seek you and love you with all of my heart and mind and soul and strength. Forgive us where we have played games with religion before, thinking that that's all that you required. You gave everything for us, and you expect everything in return. So here and now, we commit ourselves into your hands. Save us. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Wash us of all of our sins. Surround us with your mighty angels and keep the demons at bay. And when those inevitable trials hit, remind us that your loving arms are extended. And all you want us to do is to come a-running. We do, here and now. We commit ourselves into your hands. And we're here to say to you, we love you. We love you so much. Help us to love you more. Into your hands we commit ourselves, eternal God, in Jesus' name.